Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Stephen Satterfield is the founder of Whetstone, a magazine that digs deep into the anthropology of food, far from the world of celebrity chefs. Food is a universal language. It's such a powerful medium, and it's such a powerful means of connecting with other human beings. Before we hear from Satterfield, I chat with food writer and journalist Diana Henry, author of How to Eat a Peach, which offers a collection of seasonal menus. Diana, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. Uh, you are uh, ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Not you, there, sadly. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you are in my brain. You're in my head, you're here. Uh, ten cookbooks. Uh, you've been around a long time. You... Uh, you do a great job of simple cooking. So let, let's talk about when you started out. W- what was cooking like when you started out? When I moved to London in about 1986, and I was an obsessive cook, we were in the middle of Nouvelle Cuisine here. So everybody was using hexagonal plates and right. buying veal bones and roasting them mm-hmm. and reducing the stock down. And into the middle of that actually came Alice Waters around about that time is when I discovered her. But things have changed a lot since those days. Yeah, I, I think I, I would agree with that. You also said, I think you had a great quote. You said, I couldn't stir a risotto for 25 minutes with a baby on my hip. So, no. so life took over and you decided that, I mean, it's, I guess it's true. Cooking around the world historically fits the lifestyles of the people. And most of the time, it's pretty simple, right? Yeah. I think now from, I cook, I still cook at the weekend as something I love and I put a lot of time into it. But from Monday to Thursday, I am, and I, I'm sometimes embarrassed to admit this because I'm a food writer, but it's about getting something on the table pretty quickly and with minimum of effort because I've got kids and I've got a full-time job. But that's where a lot of the people I know cook, men and women. So I do a lot of that kind of cooking. You used to keep a a book of menus, right, when you were young? Yeah, I started that when I was about 16. I went my first trip abroad, and I didn't leave Northern Ireland until I was 15, and then I went on my own. So that's part of the urge to think about flavour, I think, is from growing up in Northern Ireland, where, the, where the, the food was very good, but it was very basic. And the only way I could travel was by cooking and reading. So then I went to um, France on an exchange trip when I was 15 years old. I'd never been in a plane before or out of Ireland. And when I was there, I just just thought it was the most civilised place in the world. The way they could spend, you know, an evening or from lunch till the middle of the afternoon just having this one meal. And I stayed with a very, very ordinary family. They weren't grand at all. But every meal started with crudité varié, and then there might just have been a pork chop or roast chicken. And then there was a green salad, which was one of the most important things I think I left with, this notion of a green salad made with proper a proper whole lettuce and just one leaf and a good vinaigrette. And then there might just have been fresh fruit for pudding or a fromage fray or something. But it was, it, I just thought, look at what, what they do with something that people have to do three times a day. They take care of it, they honour it, and they take it for granted as well in a certain way, which is good because they didn't make a big fuss about it. It's just that food was important in a good way. No, that's well said. I think that's absolutely right. It was so ingrained in the culture they didn't have to talk about it. Oh, totally. Right. I mean, it's sort of weird when people constantly talk about the food more than they eat it. (laughs) <laughs> which, which we is have kind that. Of... London, London's very bad for that. I mean, some days I just think, oh, just, you know, 
give me a boiled egg and a half a grapefruit and then a gin and tonic because really, <laughs> I don't want to think about trends. I don't want to think about what they're doing in kind of like the East End of London. So putting aside the hard-boiled egg and the gin and tonic, which sounds perfectly <laughs> reasonable to me, let's talk about some other food items. Uh, you mentioned a salad dressing, a vinaigrette. Uh, mm. You know, I grew up with a three parts oil to one part vinegar and made lousy vinaigrettes for 20 years and realized that that's just a small part of the possibilities. If you're going to throw together vinaigrette, what's important to you? You've got to taste it the whole time because your your vinegar will be different. Whatever acid you use, in fact, it will vary. And also even the age of your vinegar will make it taste different. So you start with that, and then I start with a small amount, and you decide whether you're going to add the Dijon or not, salt and pepper, and then you add the oil gradually, whisking it in. But the thing to do is, I mean, you can, you can have a kind of ratio in your head that's a kind of like ballpark, but I never use it. I just start with a tablespoon of vinegar and then I add. And you have to just taste and taste as you're going along. And then you have to keep adjusting it and then adjust it finally at the end. And I never use Tuscan olive oil. I'm, it's too grassy and it's too yeah. bitter. Uh, you like toast. Toast is, is like rice. It's one of those basic ingredients. You can do a lot of stuff with it. So you, you have leftover bread. You can make croutons. But what, what do you do with toast? Well, I think toast is kind of like a plate. And if you're using good bread, if you're using good sourdough, then you have a plate at least that's got some flavor in it. But then I think you can you can put almost anything on it after that, but you should keep it simple. My basic thing is toast and cheese and a green salad. And then, you know, you've got to work up from there to think of more interesting things to put on it. But I think it's, I don't think it's a bad fallback at all, as long as your bread is good. I, okay, this is great. Uh, on, on Milk Street Radio, Diana Henry said, toast and cheese in a salad. I love it. Okay, good. <laughs> you're, you're, you're real. <laughs> you're not. I am. You have no idea how real. <laughs> you're a real cook. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's Diana Henry's household. It's 5 p.m. You have a chicken in the fridge. Now what? Oh, well, I did have last night, actually. Or no, the night before. That's what the, that my, my son finished his exam, so we had, we had chicken as a treat. Um, I cooked a chicken, high temperature, and all I do is put some oil on the outside, salt and pepper, maybe a lemon inside that I've bashed a bit and then stuck uh, prongs of a fork in so that the juices of that come out. And I cook that for an hour. Um, and I don't baste it. I don't do anything with it. I keep the legs to the back. So the legs are pointed towards the back of the oven because it's a bit hotter there. And I don't do it in a dish that's much too big for it because then the juices will, they'll come off and they'll just kind of burn or just right. disappear completely. Um, and I did a salsa verde with it because I just happened to have, with not all the herbs that you should have, because I had two of them. Um, but that again was looking partly at what was in my fridge and thinking, okay, that basil should be used now really. And that was it. That's what we had. And I had put little little tiny potatoes in, in olive oil and rosemary, and those went in for the last 45 minutes of the chicken cooking. Uh, pasta. I know you have reservations about pasta, but something that cooks in about the same amount of time they would take to cook the pasta. Oh, this is what I always tell people to do. I say that they're better to have this in a ready meal. Everybody who says, I'm so tired. <laughs> um, spaghetti into the pot, and then you chop garlic, you chop parsley, you you finally grate the zest of a lemon and you get dried chili flakes and then you drain the pasta and you have have already warmed some olive oil and sauteed the garlic a bit so you basically toss all that together do you know that is one of my favorite favorite suppers 
So uh, your latest book, How to Eat a Peach, that was based upon a very simple uh, dessert you had in Italy, I believe, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. I was in my early 20s and I'd never been to Italy before. And um, we stayed in a little apartment in Siena and I I cooked Marcella Hazan every day. And then on the last night we went out for dinner and it was a very simple restaurant. It wasn't fancy at all. Um, But at the next table, they didn't have what we, what British people might regard as a pudding. They had a bowl of peaches and a bottle of very cold Moscato. And they have the peaches and they sliced them and they dropped them in their wine glasses. And then they topped it up with the wine and then they let them macerate and gesticulate it and chat it for 15 minutes. Hmm. And then they ate the peaches with little forks and then they drank the wine. And I thought this just looked heavenly, simple. And it said quite a lot to me about food, really, when you should know when not to cook it, when to leave it alone, when just to put things together and that you appreciate those elements without even applying heat to them at all. So you have menus, usually three courses, I believe. I'm terrible at menus. I hate menus. I love cooking. Well, because I'm not good at it. Uh, You obviously are. So uh, how do you think about what is a menu for you? Um... First of all, I think you can start wherever you want. You don't have to do the main course first, which is what most people do. I think you can, every year, you know, the things I want to cook, soon it'll be apricot tart. They're just starting to come in. And then you can work backwards from there. You don't have to do it in the most obvious way. I like to think of what goes with what in terms of flavor and texture and also what's doable without getting too exhausted. And And I like the idea that they kind of, take you somewhere so quite often they're based on a place you know in my new book there's a there's a New York menu and there's menu set in Brittany and stuff like that but I think that's what I just think that's what food is for me it's about going to other places but also I just like the way they can meander around I mean that 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 tart I just mentioned the apricot tart there's a menu in the book which is summer begins with apricot tart but before it there is there's there's just a chicken cooked with with lemons inside and then before that, there is a salad of raw sea bass with radishes and nasturtium flowers mm-hmm. and leaves, which are quite peppery, and a dressing made with rice vinegar and a, a very neutral flavored oil. And that is that, and it looks very pretty and it's quite poetic. And then to have something as prosaic as, um, you know, the chicken after that, I, I like the way that goes. Well, look, at 14 years old, you were writing down menus in a little book. Yeah, I was. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm talking to the queen or the king or <laughs> the, the nerd or the, the, maybe the, nerd the nerd of menus here. <laughs> Dan Henry, what a pleasure. Thank you so much and uh, the best of luck. Thank you very much. That was Diana Henry. Her latest book is called How to Eat a Peach. You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Please subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be taking some of your calls. Sarah, of course, is the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Let's do this. Hello. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. My name's Helen Huber from Orcas Island, Washington. Wow. Helen, how can we help you? So I bought a can of Amarina cherries, a two-pound can, and I was using the syrup to make a um, cherry panna cotta. And then I had all these cherries left over, and I didn't know what to do with them, and I really didn't want to use them for mixed drinks. 
so. I bake a lot, and I thought maybe I can rinse them out since they were so sweet and perhaps try a cherry clafouti. And I did rinse them, and I did drain them, and it was terrible. It was very, very cloyingly sweet. So I wonder if you have any suggestions for things that I can do with amarina cherries that don't involve mixing drinks. <laughs> well, that was going to be my first. <laughs> that, a spritzer was right at the top of my well, list. maybe you could mix it into ice cream. I would mix it into a vanilla ice cream recipe. You could add it as a sweetener to cherry cobbler, or any kind of, even an apple crisp might be nice with mm-hmm. that as an addition to it. Or you know what you could do is combine it with... a small bit of cherries chopped and added to a cobbler? Is that what you mean? I have cherries and I have syrup. I'm just wondering what I can do with the cherries. Okay, right. well, when we do uh, an apple galette, for example, a simple apple freeform tart, you could do it any uh-huh. way you want. People add prunes, they add dried cherries. That's one way to do it. So I would okay. use these cherries along with the apples. Apples and cherries really go well together. But yeah. here's another thought How about combining it with rhubarb, which is notoriously sour? And just adding less sugar to the rhubarb, you know, to the recipe so that the cherries could sort of carry the rhubarb. That's a fabulous idea. And I have rhubarb growing, so that's perfect. Helen, thank you for calling. Okay. Take take care. care. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or please send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Nina from Cedarville, Arkansas. I was calling about a pancake fiasco that I had a couple weeks ago with my three-year-old son. He wakes up every Saturday morning demanding pancakes, and usually this is no problem. I use a 100% whole wheat recipe that works perfectly. Well, this morning we woke up We were halfway through mixing the batter, and I realized I didn't have any eggs. (laughs) So (laughs) there was no time to run to the store. So I thought, well, I'll mash up a banana. Maybe that'll work. And then I thought, oh, I've heard of flax eggs, where people, like, mix up ground flaxseed and use that instead of eggs. So I had some ground flaxseed, so I did that. Well, anyway, it all looked fine, so... It went into the pan, and then it just stuck completely to the pan. Did you add anything else to the recipe, or you just substituted ground flax for the eggs? I read that you're supposed to, like, mix the ground flax with water and let it soak for a bit. That is correct. We're using buttermilk or milk in the pancake recipe? There would have been milk. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the culprit was the banana. That was one thought I had. I'd say the banana was the culprit because it's so sweet. I mean, especially if it's a very ripe banana, there's all that sugar in there. Was it browner than usual, these pancakes? Not really. Like the first one, I basically just had to make a scrambled pancake because it just stuck so bad. And then the next one, I thought, well, I'll just put a ton of oil in the pan. Usually I fry in butter, but I was like, I just need one pancake to get this kid so he will be happy. So I put the next one in, and it stuck, too, like even in a ton of oil. But I got it cooked enough to, like, satisfy the three-year-old. And then I saved the batter in the fridge, and later I added an egg, and it cooked up just like a normal pancake. I doubt the flax. I, I don't understand why that would stick. It makes no sense to me. 
Well, I, I know. Okay, I have an idea. Okay. If you had let it sit for a few hours in the fridge and went back, first of all, it was cold. Secondly, it had been fully hydrated. And my guess is the texture of that batter, you know, any pancake batter that sits around for a long time changes texture a lot. Gets thicker. Yeah. So I wonder whether it was the time and temperature and it wasn't the egg. I feel good about that answer. Good yeah. About it. Yeah. I like that answer. Yeah. So it would be just <laughs> for the heck of it. It'd be fun to make that recipe again, put it in the fridge, and try it a few hours later and see if it sticks. See it. Okay. I think that's what Sounds it is. like a good experiment. <laughs> I, I think that's what it is. I think it's time and temperature. Yeah. Nina, okay. thank you. Okay. Yeah, good luck. Thank you, guys. Okay, take <laughs> Bye. care. You're listening to Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Stephen Satterfield, founder of Whetstone Magazine. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it you know I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like man this beer is good (laughs) there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of 
stew. I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today I speak with Stephen Satterfield. Satterfield is the founder of Whetstone, a magazine that explores the anthropology of food. Whetstone avoids celebrity chefs and focuses on real cooks and also the origins of foods, from wine that was invented in the Republic of Georgia 8,000 years ago to authentic Mexican underground barbecue to the origins of the modern banana, a story that, by the way, involves the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire. Stephen, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you today? I'm good. I just want to say congratulations, first of all, on Whetstone Magazine. And secondly, for going into the world of print media when everyone <laughs> says print media is dead. So, Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And um, we're certainly inspired by the trail that you set forth with your many years of uh, creating high-quality print publications. Well, what I, I really like about Whetstone is the authenticity. I mean, you really find real people cooking. It's not chefs, you know, so much. It's not all pretty. It's the real deal. And you really get into the culture and the origins in a way I think that is is not dressed up for a mass audience. It's it's real. Let's move on to some of the the stories in Whetstone. Uh, Michael Twitty, author of The Cooking Gene, he wrote an open letter. You mentioned this in your magazine to Paula Dean, and it was pretty interesting. First of all, you you write there was also revelation that many of his friends had dressed up like her for Halloween, which I thought was kind of yes. interesting. Uh, but, but he says, this is a quote from that letter. It says, you were our sort of soul mama, the white lady with the badonkadonk and the sass and the signifying who gave us a taste of the old country, which is for us, the former Confederacy and just beyond. He basically said, I'm, not, I'm disappointed, but I'm not heartless and sort of offered her a path to redemption. You know, he didn't really condemn her. He said, look, let's, let's go back and do this right. Uh, what did you think about Michael Twitty? I think that Michael Twitty's success this year as an author and really as a public intellectual on matters of Southern cuisine and culture is is timely and um, a direct result of how smart and sensitive Michael is with this kind of a subject matter. And so uh, what I like about his response to Paula Dean is that he's careful to say that instead of calling her out, he's calling her in. Right which is, in fact, what we ended up titling the piece. 
let's move to a related topic, which is the the much discussed cultural appropriation. And since you're in the business of of going to the roots of culture and food, I think you're a pretty good guy to to ask about it. Uh, when is cultural appropriation stealing, and when is it just a food like a a taco or a burrito or a, a typical dish from Thailand just becoming part of you know world cuisine? Um, I think what people who are trying to raise awareness around cultural appropriation, let's say, are really trying to do is create a dialogue around power and capital. If you want to host a dinner party to prepare some of the foods that you have perhaps learned on a recent trip to Mexico or even Senegal, then there's no harm there. But when you are using that same knowledge to then open a restaurant, particularly for a population of people that don't have the same freedom of mobility, that don't have the same access, and there's no uh, sharing either in a a monetary sense or even just an acknowledgement, then I think that that is problematic and that is part of what people who have tried to push this discussion towards the, the mainstream are really alluding to which is not about who has the right to cook what, but I think that there are some more important implications um, when it comes to who has the ability to profit off of what was prepared. Yeah, and I certainly think your point about acknowledgement is crucial. So how do you – food and culture is a changing target. I I would argue I'm not sure there is such a thing as Mexican food. I mean, you know, there was Spanish influence, there was Aztec influence, there's Central American influence – uh, is even influenced down from what is currently the continental United States. I mean, it's a mix of cultures. It's always changing. There really is no such thing as a particular dish that, that comes from a particular place and time. It, it's always changing. Is that fair or not? That uh, particular dishes change over time is certainly true. I think even, you know, I'm from Atlanta, and the way that people talk about barbecue regionally in the right. South um, is also even a moving target. So I think you find even within like communities or like ethnic communities, you still see some some overlap and some shifting in terms of the specificity of the recipes. But uh, I think for us, what we try to focus on is in knowing that there is always a story around uh, tradition and ancestry and food. Um, We really use food as the catalyst to try not to provide definitive answers, but to really go deeper on the questions and explore the questions. And um, through studying food and the origins of food and anthropology, then we're able to better understand the relationship between the migration of people, of labor, of seeds and um, agricultural ideas. Uh, And that becomes part of this larger composition of the dishes that we can argue about or just enjoy. (laughs) Yeah, preferably enjoy. Preferably enjoy. Uh, Bananas. You wrote a a great piece about bananas. Uh, You said Americans consume 30 pounds per year, but Ugandans consume 550 pounds per year. Uh, And you said the Cavendish banana, which was one of the great uh, international uh, types, actually started... Uh, in the majestic Cavendish family garden in England in 1830 and then went back out into the world. It, it came from Mauritius, went, went, to, went to England and then went back out to the South Sea Islands. So sometimes the origins of some of our basic foods are pretty complicated. 
Exactly. That's a perfect example. Um, and I think the thing that I love about that story is how we got a lot of feedback about that story and really how illuminating it was for um, particularly Americans to realize just how few varieties of bananas that we see in our country. And the point was illustrated both through the article itself, but also uh, in tandem with working with uh, a designer from San Francisco, an illustrator named Dan Bransfield, who did kind of a cross-section of maybe uh, a couple dozen bananas from all over the world, in which you start to see in a more complete way just how much diversity there is within this single crop. Yeah, and and the things you've never seen in your supermarket, of course, because they don't travel well or they don't ripen properly when they're picked or they bruise too easily, whatever. So American consumers are pretty fickle about uh, the look of their food, right? Indeed. And, um, you know, there are some concurrent social movements happening within food and agriculture around ugly produce, I think is mostly how it's being branded or discussed, because there is so much waste at the point of origin. In fact, most of the waste that we see uh, in the food system happens on the farm for exactly the reason that you're describing. So one of the interesting trends that's happening now is that there are nonprofit organizations who are partnering with some of these larger farms to sell the produce that is cosmetically challenged, um, rebranding it uh, kind of as ugly produce, and then selling that in the same way you might have a local farmer sell a, a CSA box. Uh, you talked about real barbecue, barbacoa, and you talked about large underground ovens used to slow cook the meat. Uh, could you just describe what that's, how that works and what it's like? Yeah, this is um, based on one of our stories from Texcoco, Mexico, uh, which is just north of Mexico City. And Texcoco is a town best known for uh, lamb barbacoa. That is their specialty. And uh, the way that they do it, their tradition of barbecue is um, really spectacular in that they uh, create and sustain the fire by using maguey leaves, maguey, uh, a type of agave like you um, would get uh, tequila or mezcal from. And these leaves are actually um, essentially smoked and they hold their temperature and you're able to uh, lower the meat into these really deep pits and also cover with the maguey leaves. So it has this uh, sustained steam and smoke and it's cooked for a number of hours. I think in total, the whole process is uh, about 18 hours. But the byproduct, of course, it's Mexico. So it's served with uh, an assortment of amazing salsas from local chilies and uh, with tortillas. And you kind of use this very, very tender meat as um, a medium to put all of the different salsas on. And it's really, really uh, some of the most spectacular barbecue I've ever had in my life. So in Whetstone, you had a piece about tortillas. Is a really good homemade tortilla just something totally different than what you buy at the supermarket? It is so much different than what you buy in the supermarket. I mean, I think the for people who have had the pleasure of eating homemade bread just out of the oven, you will easily be able to spot the difference in flavor and the experience itself of eating fresh baked bread um, as opposed to buying a pre-sliced loaf from the grocery store, for instance. And I think it's very much the same 
experience or comparable when you're talking about fresh made tortillas versus what you see in the store. But one of the cool things happening in, I guess we should say the world of corn right now is that there is a a growing interest in using corn or making tortillas from corn that is native to Mexico. And so right now, most of the tortillas that we see in the grocery store and tortilla chips, they come from industrial varieties of corn. Hmm. But these native varieties of corn, of which there are hundreds, have really the ability to create a completely new lexicon for chefs all over the world. Um, As we now have people who are exporting these single varieties of corn and making tortillas from that. And each corn, of course, has its own different, you know, flavor profile. And um, it's one of the most exciting trends that we're seeing, I think, uh, in the country right now. You know, uh, here's a question for you. I, I travel a lot. I guess you travel a lot, too. Here's what I've found. I've found you can go to another country where you don't speak their language and vice versa. And you're in a kitchen with someone. And something happens when you start cooking. I was cooking with an 80-year-old mm-hmm. not too long ago making scallion pancakes, and she was very frustrated. Mm-hmm. I was doing it all wrong. You know, so she started like <laughs> grabbing the rolling pin out of my hands and telling me I didn't know what I was doing. But we became actually pretty good friends after an hour of this. Uh, There's something magical about that. Is that. Do you find that when you travel, did, when you cook with somebody, there, there's something that happens that it's sort of hard to explain? Oh, this is... This is absolutely a a universal truth that we see over and over again, which is that food is a universal language. It's such a powerful medium and it's such a powerful means of connecting with other human beings, except for oxygen. It is probably the most essential part of being a human and um, really the only experience that is shared universally. And so what we see over and over again, and certainly what I've seen in my travels, is that once people understand that you have a genuine interest, appreciation, and affinity for the food that they're preparing, they're much more willing to break down walls and barriers um, to welcome you into their homes. Do you have a a specific example of that? (laughs) Um, Well, last year, I traveled to the Republic of Georgia, and along our journey, we were advised about a bed and breakfast, which was in a village called Pankisi Gorge. And Pankisi Gorge is uh, best known of late for being a breeding ground for young teenage boys being recruited into ISIS. And we met this woman, Layla, who owns a bed and breakfast there who has a really unbelievable and powerful story where her two sons, she sent to Europe to try to evade the influence of ISIS recruiting her sons and um, really kind of gut-wrenchingly, she loses her two sons to ISIS anyway, and um, they end up dying in, in war. And so Layla decides as a way to help shift the, the reputation of this village that she will open a bed and breakfast in Pankisi where she cooks their traditional food and welcomes visitors in from the outside. There was this reality outside of the gates of Layla's garden in which we were seen as, as infidels. And because Layla 
had created so much goodwill in the community and had gone through so much, her guests were basically given a, a secret hall pass or there was some measure of understanding. But when you see or read about ISIS in the news, I mean, there's so much confusion and gravity that goes along with that. And that was just a moment where, you know, we came to this village to learn about this woman and to to share a meal with her. And it brought us into an environment um, that we could have never, ever conceived and around stories that are much more complex than just how to properly make a noodle or a sauce or something like that. And so that's really where I'm the most grateful uh, in traveling is when we're able to find these moments of connection that in fact end up deepening our empathy for, for other human beings. That was Stephen Satterfield, founder of Whetstone Magazine. For 150 years, we've looked to technology to save the world. But what about cooking? With technology, you can stream movies, but with cooking, you can meet your neighbors, feed your family, and enhance your worldview. A taste of real Mexican barbacoa, for example, puts the pulled pork sandwich at your local barbecue joint into perspective. You can cook food, eat it, talk about it, preserve it, and even research it. That's a lot more than can be said of the World Wide Web. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Tacos al Pastor. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. Well, since I'm the resident historian here at Milk Street, uh, Tacos al Pastor, we think, comes from Mexico. Actually, really comes from Lebanon, because a lot of Lebanese emigrated to Mexico. They brought the shawarma, which is spit-roasted meat, thinly sliced, but they made a taco out of it with some grilled pineapple, hence tacos al pastor. Now, you were just in Mexico, as you just reminded me, five times, uh, and you had them on the streets of Mexico, right? I did. I think I probably ate my weight in tacos al pastor. And one of the things I love about it is this balance between the heat from the chilies and the sweetness from the pineapple. It's usually a pineapple salsa, sometimes just slices of pineapple grilled and added to the taco. It's usually slow-roasted pork shoulder done on a vertical spit. Obviously, we weren't going to probably do that at home on a vertical spit. I don't have a vertical spit. I'm not sure if you do. So we wanted to modify it for a home cook and also make it a little bit quicker. The first thing we're going to do is use the grill. It's a great way to get a lot of flavor really fast. And instead of using pork shoulder, we're going to use pork tenderloin. So that's a leaner, quicker cooking meat. So we can probably do this quickly enough so I could eat tacos al pastor every night of the week. As you probably have been doing since you got back. So it's pork tenderloin, and how do you cut it? It's really important here to take the tenderloins and pound them down in between two pieces of plastic wrap to about a half an inch thickness. This is going to create a larger surface area. That's going to help us flavor the meat both with a marinade and on the grill. So there's more surface area. Okay. And then we're going to make a marinade here using some of that pineapple that we usually use at the end. We're going to actually put it into a marinade to flavor the meat. So that's pineapple, cumin, ancho chili powder, and chipotle chilies and adobo. Those get pureed together in a blender or food processor. And then you take some of that to marinate the meat, and some of it is going to be put aside for later. We're actually going to put the meat back into that puree after we cook it. So cook it on the grill. We take the pineapple on the grill as well? We do. So first we're going to cook the pineapple on the grill, chop that up. It's going to get some really nice char. Chop it up, add some lime juice, some cilantro and salt, and that's sort of a quick, simple Mm. salsa. 
and then the meat gets cooked about three minutes per side. And like I said, we have that nice surface area of the meat, so a lot of that is going to get char on it. And then take it off the heat and cut it into strips. Then it goes back in that puree that we made earlier, right into some corn tortillas, add some salsa. You can add chopped onion on it, shredded red cabbage, lime juice. So does this mean I don't have to go to Mexico? Or? I mean, I still advise going to Mexico. <laughs> well, the 25 other reasons to go to Mexico. <laughs> so this takes this is about an hour or so? Yeah, maximum. So an hour, Backyard Grill, Tacos Al Pastor, which is grilled pork tenderloin and grilled pineapple. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman of The Sparkful debates the moral quandary of ice cream shop samples. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits, experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moesalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Most Day Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some calls uh, with my uh, learned co-host, Sarah Moulton. You're so nice. Yes, I'm ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Amelia Ackerman. Um, I'm a fourth grader. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Rochester, New York. Oh. Have we ever had a fourth grader call before? I don't think so. This is fantastic, yeah. Amelia. Good for you. Do you listen to, Thank I you. have to ask, do you listen to the show? Sometimes, oh. yeah, on the radio. <laughs> Okay, good. So how can we help you? So my question is, um, sometimes my mom uh, cooks with coconut sugar mm-hmm. instead of regular sugar, and I was wondering what is the difference between coconut sugar and regular sugar? Well, coconut sugar is made from coconut sap, and so it's got a nice flavor to it. A lot of people think it's a richer flavor, I think. I'm not sure. Maybe Sarah knows. I think it's about equal to white sugar in terms of sweetness. I don't I know about that answer. I do know it has some trace, you know, minerals and stuff in it and things that are good for you. But you'd have to eat an awful lot of it to benefit from those items. It's got, you know, like potassium and calcium But, I mean, if stuff. you want to substitute out, I think it's probably similar. I mean, it's a good question because it's so interesting. We, since about 1880, the United States got really keen on sugar, it became less expensive, it was refined, and all of a sudden the sugar in our diets went way up. But white sugar has no flavor, which sometimes is a good thing if you want to have other flavors come through. But there are all sorts of other kinds of sugars out there, unrefined sugars, cane sugar, for example, you know, palm sugar, etc. So I think they're great. I use them in my coffee, I use them in baking. Very often you can substitute one for one like coconut sugar. So if you want to add a particular flavor, I think it's a great idea. I mean, make a great white cake, for example, I think. Right. But, Amelia, I have to ask you a question. Have you ever asked your mm-hmm. mother why she uses it? I don't believe I have, no. Because I'd, I'd be fascinated. Um, yeah. I believe she uses it either for, like, a health benefit or something like that. Um, yeah, a health benefit probably instead of the regular sugar. Yeah. Does she generally cook healthy food? Yeah. Like, we don't have, like... Doritos or something. It's, well, that's good. Like, well, that's, that's good. That's good. I approve that. I'm sure you have no soda in your house either. Yeah. That's no. good because uh, there's well, a lot of hidden sugar good. in there. But I would say, in general, coconut does have some, as I said, you know, minerals and, and things that are good for you in it. But you'd have to eat a ton of it, and that would not be a good thing because at the end of the day, it's a sweetener like sugar is. And, you know, calorie-wise and what it does to your body is, you know, basically... Well, sugar is, the unfortunately, same. sugar. Yeah. Anyway, for flavor, though, I think the Flavor, we approve. Yeah. yeah. Amelia, love having you on the show. Yes. yes. Call anytime you want. Thank you. All right. You. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye. Yeah. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Please give us a call anytime with your questions at 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or please send us an email at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Hello, welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? 
This is William from Denver, Colorado. Hi, William. How can we help you today? So I inherited a bunch of cast iron pans from my grandmother, and I've been using them for years. And then I had a friend stay with me for a couple of days, and he was trying to thank me by reseasoning one of them that needed it. And it cracked in the middle into four wedges, and we have no idea what happened. (laughs) Okay, I have a question. When you were heating it up, is this on full blast, and how long was it sitting on the stove? Uh, It was on the stove about three to five minutes, and it was on medium. No. Okay, and then let it cool on the stove? Yes. When did it crack? It cracked when it started to cool, and then the next time it heated up, it just completely cracked. No, that's no. Is this a cast iron skillet, like a 10 or 12-inch skillet? Oh, yeah. I've been using it for years. No. No, there was something happened before then because two to three minutes on medium heat's not going to do anything to a 10 or 12-inch cast iron skillet. I mean, it's just not possible. <laughs> it must have had a little crack yeah. in it well, anyway. Well, so, something happened. Somebody dropped it. You it was really said, hot and got put in cold water or something Yeah, happened. I was just going to say it sounds like thermal shock yes. from a prior experience because you just said it needed to be seasoned. Why did it need to be ah, seasoned? good question. Somebody must have not treated it properly the time before, and maybe yeah. it did get thermal shock. You know, that's from when it goes from being very, very hot on top of the stove, and then you put it in the sink and put cold water right. in it. Which that is can not a good idea. Not a good thing to do. So it might have already had a tiny hairline crack from that experience, and then when you heated it again, that was the end of it. Well, it's sort of like a couple Thanksgivings ago, my brother-in-law, I got up the next morning, and I noticed my cast iron pan was sitting in the rack, the dish rack. Uh-oh. Dun, dun, dun. And I said, uh, what happened? He said, well, I, you know, he's very proud. He said, I cleaned your cast iron pan for oh, you. Dear, he and I said, like, so... I said, you need to leave the house now. <laughs> That's exactly what happened to me. So I, I wonder if you had a guest who was trying to do a good deed. That's exactly what happened. He had cooked some pork chops and uh, uh-huh. I don't eat pork, so he was trying to be nice. So, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. There you go. When I grew up in Vermont, they used to keep the cast iron pan on the stove. They never, ever cleaned it. Wow. Just had a little layer of grease at the bottom. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it was not stick. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think there was somebody uh, did Somebody, something. yeah. I think it was somebody else who was, was doing you a favor fault. earlier because Absolutely. that's why it needed to be seasoned. Yeah, somebody that didn't fess up to it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. They, they put a hot pan in a cold sink. That's what that's I think, what yeah. So anyways, it wasn't you. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, mystery solved. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for thank calling. Thank much. Okay. Yeah, pleasure. Bye. This is Most Day Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Lapsang Sushang is a widely available, very smoky black tea, but it can also add flavor to a simple salt without the usual spiciness of smoky seasonings like chipotle chilies. Here's how to do it. Use your fingers or a spice grinder to blend one tablespoon of whole leaf tea into two tablespoons of kosher salt. Now use this to season meats or poultry before cooking or as a finishing salt for vegetables. What do you owe an ice cream shop when you take a sample or two or five? Dan Pashman of the Sporkful is here to discuss that moral dilemma. Dan, how are you? All right, Chris. How are you doing? What's going on in your world today? Well, my world is uh, where I'm embroiled in an, in an internal debate that I'm hoping you can help me with. It's an, it's an ethical quandary. Uh, I'm, go- I'm very good at those. No, I, I know that you're a man of morals. You're a deep thinker. And that's why I've come to you with this issue, which is, uh, you know, you go into an ice cream shop. And it's common to get samples. You can ask to taste a flavor. They even have those little miniature spoons. Right. And maybe you taste one and it doesn't taste as good as you hoped. So you try a second one, 
you try a third one, nothing's really doing it for you. What if you turn around after having eaten those three or even four or five samples and walk out and buy nothing? Are you a bad person? Did you do something wrong? Or is that fair game in the world of free ice cream samples? Well, the, the, the question I have to ask you, is this a moral question or is this simply a, a transactional question? Well, I don't know that I would separate the two. Part of the morality here is that you are taking something of value from somebody else that, that if you were to get more of it, you would pay for. So really, it, 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 is it wrong to accept those samples without paying for them? You're, and there's two fronts. There's the, there's the worker who scooped the ice cream for you and who put in effort to get you your samples. And then there's the, the business owner, which may or may not be the same person, uh, who has paid for that five-gallon tub of ice cream that you're now taking from. Well, so do you I, owe the business owner something? Do you owe the worker something? Yes, you do. Uh, and, and here's why. My wife, her rule is because of the service, you are required to buy something. And at first I went like, I don't think so. But she said, that, that, <laughs> she said no, that, that's how it works. That they're, they're helping you and they've invested their time and they expect something in return. So I would say even though a few dabs of ice cream on a little tiny wooden paddle is not a much of, of an investment on their part – I, I think morally you are required to buy something. Now, what I would do is buy the tiniest scoop in a cup, and if you really didn't like it, just throw it out when you leave the store. But I, I do think there's an expectation if you've taken a free sample other than a you know piece of bad cheddar in a supermarket. Yeah, I, I think you owe them something. Yes. Don't you feel like free samples are built into the cost of running an ice cream store? I mean, that's a very small... Like like a five-gallon tub of ice cream wholesale isn't that expensive, and you're getting one teeny, tiny, microscopic fraction of that. Isn't that part of the sort of the marketing budget of the ice cream store? Ah, that's why I asked you whether this was a transactional issue, a monetary issue, or moral. Right. From, from a, a financial point of view, they're investing a few cents to ma- make a couple bucks on your ice cream. I don't think it's about the money. I think it's about the person who gave you the, the flavors, the samples. I think there you've established a relationship with that person, no matter how tenuous and short, and you have to fulfill your part of the relationship. It's about relationships. Chris, I think this is the most emotional I've ever heard you. <laughs> well, I you know I used to drive a taxi in New York when my college years, and, and I have really a, yeah I have a and I I tip taxi drivers really well as a result and restaurant workers because I I do have a deep appreciation for people who do really hard work, and I think scooping ice cream is probably you know right there. <laughs> as as something that's a difficult job. So I, I think it's just to say thank you to the person who gave you the samples. It's not about money. It's about your you're giving back to that person who gave you something and took their time. It's about time. It's not about money. What did you learn from being a taxi driver? Uh, we don't have enough time to go into all of that. <laughs> um, no, you, you know what I learned? I, I learned that a lot of people do really hard jobs and that a, a good tip, you know, a nice tip, makes all the difference. It makes your day. So if someone came in my cab, and this is back in the 70s, and it was 10 or $15 on the meter, which would be quite large, if someone threw me five bucks as a tip, you know, I'd, I really feel good. Uh, and so it, it, a small investment for someone who has a tough job is really worth doing because it's you're talking in this case about two or three bucks. It's money well spent. So, so what if, getting back to our ice cream store situation, what if you were to just, rather than buy any ice cream, let's say you tried a few samples, decided you didn't like anything, what if you were to just put a dollar or two in the tip jar 
which is less off, which is typically going to be less money than buying ice cream, and also that money is more likely to go directly to that worker who served you. That's fine. You you are no longer morally culpable. If the person serving you is is nice, because there are times that I feel like when you ask for a couple of different free samples, there are certain people behind the counter who will give you an attitude about it. Well, that's true. And if if you're going to give me an attitude that and and if the ice cream doesn't taste good, then I'm going to leave. I agree. If the person is very nice and friendly and providing yes. good service, and I just don't like the ice cream, then I would put a dollar or two. Yeah, if it's bad service, you don't owe them anything. But. Good service, they deserve a good tip. And, and you know what? Okay. T- tips are, are short money, and it makes you feel good. It makes them feel good. I think it's it's worth a couple of bucks to, to do that. All right. I agree with that, Chris. God, we actually agree. I know. That's weird. Well, Dan Pashman, thank you very much. Uh, oddly enough, this week, you and I agree, and we've <laughs> taken the morally high ground. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. You know, Dan Pashman worries about the moral quandary presented by free ice cream samples. Does good service demand a reward? I say it does, but for pretty much selfish reasons. Buying a three-scoop ice cream cone or generously tipping a weight person is less about them and really more about you. Think of it as tithing, giving 10% of your earnings to a good cause. You are, in effect, paying your debt to the universe for having a good life, one where you can afford a taxi, a nice dinner, even a three-scoop cone. It's money well spent. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.